0: I asked Claude and David what they'd like me to speak about. I thought perhaps they had a theme going on or uh, some sort of uh, particular text they'd like me to speak about. But they they said what they'd said before. Uh, They said, you decide. Talk about whatever's on your heart. And I had various thoughts about what would be appropriate. Uh, But before I could reach a decision on what to choose... World events took the dreadful turn that has dominated our news since the 24th of February, um, finally pushing COVID off the front pages and television news headlines for the first time for something over two years. You will all remember, I'm sure, that was the day Russia chose to extend the previously relatively little reported conflict that's been rumbling on for more than eight years now between uh, Russia and its neighbor Ukraine by launching uh, what it likes to call a special military operation. Um, Moscow speak for invading its smaller neighbors. And as events have unfolded over the past three weeks or so, I became increasingly convinced that it would be proper this morning uh, to take some time um, sharing a few biblical thoughts about the war and then encouraging us to pray together about it. So that's the, sp- that's the plan. I'll spend a few minutes sharing some thoughts from a biblical perspective on what's going on. Um, bearing in mind it's a huge subject and we won't have time to do more than have a cursory look at one or two things um, and then see if we can get our minds thinking about it, see what the Bible has to say about conflict and war in general um, and then um, at the end we'll spend some time praying. Now. When I was talking to Felicity about this and she was having a look at what I had in mind, to say, she said, don't get too into the politics. I'm not trying to get into the politics of it. We're talking about a biblical perspective on war and conflict. That's, that's what my aim is to do. And really as an introduction to a time when we can pray together at the, at the end. So let me pray now and then we'll get into it. Father God, we, we thank you for your many blessings to us and in particular for the freedom and security that we are privileged to enjoy in this country. Help us, we pray, as we spend some time thinking about conflict and how it's affecting part of the world far from here, where lives and property are under threat. Help us better to understand what your Bible has to tell us about such matters. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, David briefly mentioned last week uh, that when I last spoke to you, I started that talk by likening the Bible to one of those Haynes car maintenance manuals uh, that some of us used to rely on in the days when it was still possible to look after a car yourself without a diagnostic computer and professional health. And as with analogies generally, of course, the Bible and the Haynes manual are not directly equivalent. I'm not trying to suggest that. But I went on last time to suggest that the Bible, among its many other virtues, does provide us with a manual on how to deal with the many and varied challenges that life presents to us, things that get thrown up at us. And my guess is that I'm not alone in thinking that what's going on in Ukraine at present is exactly the sort of situation where we as believers in Jesus need every bit of practical help we can get to grapple with what's going on. So, rather like Professor Lennox was saying, turn to the Bible, um, what did I find when I had a look for this? Well, often my experience, when one is trying to find out what the Bible has to say on a topic, for a, if you want to talk like this, or you're just wrestling with it in your own mind, it quickly becomes reasonably clear what the Bible has to say about something. What you find is you'll find Old Testament and New Testament passages that seem to hang together pretty well. Uh, What Jesus has to say, always a good place to start, of course, whilst frequently challenging, indeed very often intensely challenging, is clear and seems to make obvious sense. The other New Testament writers provide supporting texts that reinforce what one has read. And when you start to look at commentaries and things like that, they seem broadly in agreement about what the Bible is trying to tell us about the subject in question. Yes, of course, if you're going to come and talk to people like you, like this, you still need to spend time prayerfully considering what's in the text and refining what one is going to say and trying to make the talk as interesting and coherent and helpful as possible. Not to mention making sure it's not too long or too short, of course, always so a hazard. Um, but the overall direction of what the Bible has to say is generally pretty clear. But Christian theology relating to conflict and war is one of the more complex areas Legitimate differences of interpretation of the relevant texts do arise. In short, it is not at all straightforward. For a start, as I'm sure you're all aware, there are very marked differences between what the Old and New Testament writers have to say about conflict. Violence between individuals and larger scale warfare between nations and groups of people both feature prominently throughout the Old Testament. If you're a student of the Psalms, for example, David writes in graphic detail about his battles with the enemies of Israel. Some pretty brutal descriptions there of what happened. But the New Testament sets a very different tone. Some would argue a polar opposite tone. Jesus himself is clear that violence on a personal level is evil and best avoided. You'll find plenty of texts on that. Let's see one of them. Um, Can we get it up there, the Matthew text? Uh, This is from chapter 5 in Matthew, verses 38 to 45, part of a longer passage. You'll all know this one. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. He was referring back there. This is Jesus referring back to the Old Testament. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons and daughters of your Father in heaven. And... Paul and other New Testament writers echoed those sentiments of Jesus and expanded on them. Um, Let's have a look at another passage. This one's in Romans. Romans chapter 12, verses 17 to 21. Again, part of a larger passage. It's worth reading all of it. But this is what Paul wrote. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, Heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now we could look at more passages, but see, few would argue that the Christian ideal is total elimination of conflict and war, for brotherly love to reign among all people. But realistically, and we have to be realistic. We find ourselves in a world which is far from this ideal. In this imperfect world, conflict, war may be forced on those who do not desire it. That's exactly what's happening to the people of Ukraine at the moment. And there's an interesting verse in that Romans text that we've just had a look at. Paul says in there, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you live at peace with everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Many writers use insofar as it depends on you to justify legitimate self-defense as opposed to aggression. But others would say that that's just a cop-out. The fact is that the Bible does not give us Christians a clear Answer about whether war is permitted or not. It's one of those difficult things. Pacifist and non pacifist Christians can and do both advance biblical arguments for their diametrically opposed positions. And I'm not going to try and give you guidance on which way to go this morning. But what the Bible and the Old Testament, uh, Old Testament and New, and what Jesus in particular, did do is give us a great deal of very clear guidance about justice the sanctity of life the importance of resolving conflict and the value of seeking peace famously in his sermon on the mount for example in matthew chapter 5 verse 9 jesus said blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called sons of god So how are we thinking about these things meant to square this circle? Well, it's been the subject of theological debate since the earliest times of the church. Um, When I was looking into this, I found some writings going right back to the fourth century uh, when St. Augustine uh, wrote about the dilemma uh, and... uh, uh, In in the 13th century, um, St. Thomas of Aquinas wrote something down which has come to be be called the principles of just war. Uh, And these have been refined since. Can we have a look at those, um, Martin, please? This, uh, have we got it? Here we are. This text is still a basis for many of the international agreements about what is okay and not is okay and not okay. But frankly, I find the whole business of having rules about having fights is a bit silly anyway. But this is uh, uh, the principle uh, which is called the just war theory. There must be a just cause for the war. War must be waged only in response to certain grave and lasting damage. The motive for war must be good, not evil. The ultimate objective of war must be to bring peace. Revenge, revolted desire to harm, dominate, or exploit and similar things are not a justification for a war. And every possible means of peacefully settling the conflict must be exhausted first. There must be a serious prospect of success. Fighting without hope of victory cannot be justified. Uh, the war must be declared by a legitimate authority. Private battles and so on are Uh, inappropriate and uh, war must not cause greater evil than the evil to be eliminated and non-combatant civilians people like us must not be intentionally harmed and prisoners and conquered peoples must be treated justly now of course that's not straight out of the Bible it's an attempt of people to distill um, a moral basis for How we should conduct our activities and uh, countries like ours generally subscribe to that view Uh, my personal view is if you read around it in the bible that's probably about as good as we can get to you can see there that it prohibits aggression it talks about defense i think it's reasonably compatible with what paul had to say in that passage we read from romans so let me try and illustrate that by sharing one or two of my own thoughts about what's going on in Ukraine and then uh, we'll finish at the end by spending some time praying about these things. As I said before, I don't want to get into the rights and wrongs of what's actually happening there. Um, There are some historical facts about that part of Europe which have been very little publicized in all of this. You'll find plenty about it online, um, including there's quite a lot of writing by Christian writers claiming that uh, the Bible predicted some of the things that are going on in. between Russia and Ukraine at the moment. There's a passage in Ezekiel, for example, that some people uh, quote. I'm not going there. I'm not saying they're wrong, but I don't understand them. Yes, the end times will eventually come, but I don't think debating it in the context of Ukraine is uh, particularly helpful. Um, There was an interesting thing on Radio 4 this morning, for example, talking about the, the role of the Orthodox Church in what's going on in East Europe as well, which was also very interesting. Uh, but again, I'm not going to go there this morning, but if you have a look on the internet, that's, again, quite an interesting area uh, because one of Putin's um, principal supporters is the, uh, the senior cleric of the Orthodox Church, and he has come out completely supporting everything that's going on and saying, in that, in his view, it's a just war, which is uh, extraordinary, really. So. Here are my own, um, a few of my own, less esoteric, very basic thoughts on what's going on. First of all, I think it's pretty obvious that it's a dreadful situation. Nobody's saying this is good. Um, to be honest, I, don't, I hadn't seen it coming. We hadn't really expected it, although it has, if, if you look back now over the past few weeks, it was coming. I mean, Putin has only done what he said he was going to do. He hasn't done any more than that but we hadn't expected it. And we don't really understand what's going on. We don't know where it's going to end. Uh, but the big question, of course, is what can and should I and we, fellow Christians, be doing about it? Let's have a look at some of those things and uh, see where it gets us. And then, as I say, at the end, we'll, uh, we'll spend some time praying about it. So that first thing, um, I don't think, does anybody disagree that this is, this is uh, dreadful? Um, It's a bad situation. Uh, We don't need the Bible to to tell us that the the, the destruction of lives and property that is occurring at present is wrong and should stop, and stop very quickly. Um, If if you go back to that uh, set of principles of a just war that we had a look at a few moments ago, uh, what's going on in Ukraine fails virtually all of them. There's perhaps one in that list that it doesn't fail. Uh, but the vast majority of those things, the conflict in Ukraine fails. That differentiates this from most other recent conflicts that have gone on. Uh, although they're all bad, generally, you don't find a conflict where so many of those principles of just war are, are broken by what's going on. So, it's bad. It should be stopped. What about it being unexpected? Well... We are fortunate here to live in a country where our island geography, past military prowess, I don't think it it would apply any longer, and choice of allies over many centuries have, generally speaking, kept our enemies at bay for literally hundreds of years, some would say since 1066. I mean, there's no doubt things went badly wrong in 1066, but uh, since then, generally, we've, we've resisted these things. There was a close call in 1940, uh, when Hitler got as far as assembling an, inflation fl- an invasion fleet on the other side of the channel and um, uh, historians among you will no doubt come and remind me afterwards that there have been a few uh, more minor incursions since um, when Felicity and I were on holiday in Wales um, in last year we, we, we found reference to the, the invasion by the French of Fishguard in Wales in 1797 for example but that hardly compares to what's going on in Ukraine at the present. Yes Britain, um, rightly or wrongly, has had a, a history of foreign campaigns of one sort and another, uh, some justified, some perhaps less so, some successful, some less so, uh, since, uh, since the end of the Second World War. And certainly, uh, we, like most of the world, have had economic turmoil from various causes uh, that has affected people's standard of living, uh, feelings of well-being and so on and so forth. Uh, But with the possible exception of the Cuban Missile Crisis, which was way back in 1962, actual or threatened conflict um, has not really impacted our peace and prosperity here in Britain uh, since the end of the Second World War. Uh, Perhaps we've got too complacent about this. We should be grateful, certainly, for the peace and prosperity that we've enjoyed. But we need to remember... uh, that many parts of the world have suffered badly uh, not lose sight of the fact that the Bible encourages us to recognize that it is the lot of man to suffer trouble of one sort or another. I'm afraid these things have happened in the past and they will continue to happen in the future and not always with any justification. I mean there's, the, uh, there are several Psalms which we know very well and I'm not going to read it down now because I'm conscious of the time but if you 've got time afterwards, have a read at psalm forty four which sets out what happened to a group of people where there were dreadful things that happened to them for no good reason and it didn't it didn 't end well i 'm afraid that 's been the history um, of, of, of of civilization um, there 's a, a verse in 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 um, in Job, where he says, man is born to trouble just as the sparks fly upwards. And Flistio is reminded of that if we're watching a bonfire. And Jesus himself, in, in John chapter 16, verse 36, when he was talking to his disciples just before his crucifixion, said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So whilst events as drastic as the invasion of one country by a a more powerful neighbor, such as we're seeing at the moment, may be infrequent, they're neither rare nor are to be unexpected. Though I must say uh, there's little doubt in my own mind that the current crisis is a particularly serious one. We just need to continue being grateful and giving thanks that in this part of the world we've been spared all of this stuff for 80 odd years. So what are some of the things that are going on here? Well, as I said in my opening remarks, I'm not going to go into a, a lot of the background detail, um, but I think one of the things that it is important to bear in mind is that this is a very complicated situation. Just like the area in the Middle East that we read about in our Bibles, the recent and longer-term history of Ukraine and the surrounding countries is complicated, really complicated. Um, I guess that I'm not alone in having only a fairly hazy understanding of of what's involved. In fact, speaking personally, I wasn't even completely sure where Ukraine was on the map, and certainly some of these smaller East European countries around it. um, I wasn't quite sure where they were. But perhaps some of you are better informed, but I was certainly... Very little informed about some of the agreements that have been reached between countries. Now, I have spent a bit of time uh, researching. I'm not going to go through all the ins and outs of it. Uh, But there are a series of agreements that have been reached, in particular um, following the defeat of Hitler's Germany in 1945, which certainly people in that part of the world still remember. They're still uh, very relevant to them. Um, Ironically... um, The main part of those agreements were reached at a big conference between Churchill, Stalin, and Roosevelt, uh, which took place at a place called Yalta, which is in Crimea, uh, which is one of the places that's now under dispute, of course. Um, And Ukraine wasn't invited at the time, which is interesting. So as was the case in Bible times, those historical grievances, long forgotten here in most places, are still raw locally, and um, uh, they're they're very, very... influential on what's going on. Uh, Mr. Putin, for example, consistently mentions his dissatisfaction that an agreement reached um, when the so- after the Soviet Union collapsed in, um, uh, around Christmas 1991 has not been honoured by uh, NATO and the other countries. I'm not saying he's right, but these things are still affecting him. So what does the Bible have to say to help us with this? Well, the Bible recognizes the complexity and difficulty of issues like this and it talks a lot about the need uh, for for wisdom particularly wisdom amongst leadership Um, and interestingly it often conflates wisdom and peace it puts the two together Uh, there's a passage in James chapter 3 Verses 17 and 18, for example, it says, But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow peace raise a harvest of righteousness. So it seems to me that wisdom, wisdom for leaders, people who are influential in all of this, is essential if we're going to get any peace out of it Um now how, how are people for another five minutes before I stop are you okay for another five minutes yeah okay where's it all going to end well it's going to be a long time before it ends, it seems to me. We just don't know. But the human and economic damage of what has happened already is also going to take a long time uh, to be assessed and certainly before it can be reversed. I have a horrible feeling that things are going to get worse before they get better. Let's think about the human and the economic consequence. I won't say much about the economic damage. It's it's pretty apparent. But um, unless some of you here today are older than me... um, I don't think there'll be many who could have much uh, recollection of the last time there was a mass migration of traumatized refugees from one European country to others of the kind that we're seeing at at the present. But these things have happened before and they can take a long time to sort out. And I'm just about old enough to recall um, that in my childhood there were still World War II refugees living in the village in Cumbria where I, was, where I lived as a child. Um, there were literally thousands of families displaced from East Europe Um, At that time, uh, many of of Polish origin, not all, but mainly Polish, that came here in the immediate aftermath of the war. Um, There's an interesting website, um, Polish resettlement camps, if you're you're interested in researching these things. Lots of interesting pictures. There's a full list of all the camps, including the one that I used to walk past on the way to school every day uh, when I was a boy. And astonishingly, and this is why I'm mentioning this in the context of how long it will take to sort out, do you know when the last of those camps closed in Britain? Have a guess. This was a camp established for refugees from the Second World War. When do you think that closed? Hmm? 1950. Any advance on 1950? fifty? Nineteen. that's a bit too ambitious but you're not as far out as you might think the last one didn't close until 1970 it took 25 years to resettle those people who came here at that time now we hope it won't take that long with all these thousands of people moving around at the moment but the reality is it's not going to be a quick job fixing this It's, uh, it's, it's, it's a terrible thing really So what has the Bible got to say about refugees and uh, their resettlement? Well, of course, the second book of our version of the Old Testament, uh, Exodus, is named after one such migration. These were people who were refugees. They were moving from one country to another. And Although our familiar translations of the Bible don't use the term refugee, uh, there's plenty of uh, 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 references to to things related to that. If you look at words like stranger, foreigner, alien, um, you'll find that these are actually references to what we would now call refugees. And you'll find throughout the Old Testament an expectation that the people of God should deal generously with those who find themselves seeking refuge from violent conflict. For example, when God was instructing Moses on how to regulate the affairs of the Israelites, uh, in Exodus chapter 23 and verse 9, we can read, do not oppress an alien, do not oppress a refugee. You yourselves know what it feels like to be aliens. You yourselves know what it feels like to be refugees because you are aliens in Egypt. And interestingly, when you read references to the same sort of thing in the New Testament, they tend to talk rather more explicitly about helping uh, fellow believers who were in flight. But Jesus, in his own teaching, uh, when the Pharisees were trying to trick him about what was the greatest commandment, had this to say. It's in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 to 40. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. You see there, Jesus didn't differentiate between people of one belief and other. He was talking about helping everybody. And interestingly, of course, if we're talking about people coming from uh, that part of the world, most of them would claim to serve the saving God as us, but that's a a subject for another day. So, um, final thoughts before we we, we perhaps pray. Um, What can and should we be doing about all of this? Well... I think there are two things. Firstly, some of us uh, may feel called to contribute in some material way to relieving the suffering of uh, people who are now getting spread around um, Europe. Um, There is a clear and continuing need for funds to humanitarian organizations. Some of us may even feel called to offer more practical support, including offering accommodation to people. It seems to me that's a very big decision and one requiring wisdom in itself and perhaps wise counsel from uh, trusted friends and, and from our leaders in the church or wherever before dashing into that. But secondly, and this is where I'm going to end, what we can all do is pray. My guess is most of us are already praying or have prayed about Ukraine. Good. Please don't stop. But Claude shared recently with us that there's something special about the church praying together. And I'd like us to close this morning by um, just for a few minutes, praying about some things together. Um, uh, what I'm going to use is some material. It's not, it's not original material. I've only adapted it slightly. It's, uh, it's from a very good website that uh, Tearfund have put together about practical things that can be done to help people in Ukraine. Um, There are five headings in the prayers that we're going to use. They cover five different aspects of it. Um, Firstly, we'll pray for peace. We've talked about peace. Uh, We'll we'll pray for the people. We'll pray for leaders. We've talked this morning about wisdom for leaders. Uh, We'll talk about the church. And finally, uh, some of those economic things, those global impacts around the world. So let me pray. Um, And then at the end, I think we've got a couple of songs which uh, should... Help us to go out in good spirit. Okay, let's pray. <laughs> Father God, we, we know you're a God of peace, and we pray for an immediate end to the violence that's going on, that peace will come sooner than anyone could have expected or hoped for. We pray that diplomatic solutions will take the place of ones found by means of violence. We pray, Lord, that people who have been obliged to flee their homes will be able to return home. And we pray for the work of rebuilding what has been destroyed. And we pray, Lord, for strength for individuals and organizations in Ukraine and Russia and the region, here included, who are working for peace at local, national, and international levels. Lord, we pray for those people who are still in Ukraine. We pray that they'll be protected from violence, that they will get the essential supplies, food, water, heat that they need. We pray particularly, Lord, for vulnerable people, the old, the sick, the disabled, who are unable to flee. And we pray, Lord, for those who have become refugees. We pray, Lord, that they'll find safe places to stay. Lord, we we pray for people who have been hurt, for people who have been wounded or are suffering the trauma of bereavement. And we pray for their comfort and well-being. Lord, we've talked about the need for wisdom. We pray for leaders on both sides, that they be filled with compassion, wisdom, calm, and a desire for peace. That leaders will balance responding to the injustice of what has been going on with seeking ways to build bridges to reduce tension and restore security. And Lord, we we pray for the churches in Ukraine and Russia and across the wider region, that they would be a voice for peace and that they will have what they need to help people who are vulnerable. We pray, Lord, that those churches that perhaps have been reluctant to speak out against the injustices that are going on will have the courage and and conviction to speak out against aggression and injustice and we pray lord that your power would be revealed through the church in what's going on bringing messages of love and hope in the midst of the darkness and finally lord we pray about the global impact of what's going on there we we've already seen a significant increase in the price of food and fuel and we recognize lord this may get worse poor countries will be even worse affected than people are here. We pray, Lord, that food and fuel prices would be stabilized and that provision will be made for those, not just here, but elsewhere, who are in vulnerable position and badly affected by what's going on. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege of prayer and we pray that you would encourage us and lead us to carry on praying about these things and that peace would overcome.